Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors Inn. This is where medical experiences are shared, study strategies are examined, and life lessons with a sprinkle of advice and habits are served. My name is MD Hawk. I am a pre-med student in New York City. This podcast features a wide range of proactive physicians who have taken strides toward global, public, gender, and mental health initiatives to ultimately improve healthcare around the world. To no further ado, let us unwind the journey of medicine and life together. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we are joined by Dr. Javida Orowari, who is a board-certified breast surgeon practicing at Bridgeton, Missouri. She is affiliated with SSM Health DePaul Hospital, St. Louis. Dr. Javida did her fellowship in breast diseases at Brown University Woman and Infants Hospital. She attended medical school at New Jersey University in Newark and completed general surgery residency at University Hospital. Dr. Javida is a member of the American Society of Breast Surgeons and an associate fellow of the American College of Surgeons, abbreviated FACS. Dr. Javida has been a prominent voice in social awareness, fight against inequality, and a role model for women. She is an incredible surgeon, physician, and an educator who is bringing awareness to breast oncology. While she lives a busy life, Dr. Javida also finds time to read, uh, cook, travel, and write. For more information on breast oncology and living a healthy lifestyle, you can follow Dr. Javida at life with d-r-j-o-v-i-t-a underscore o on instagram or her website at www.drjovitaorowari.com without further ado let us welcome dr orowari to the inn thank you so much for taking your time out for this we really appreciate it thank you for having me oh my god what a fantastic introduction the, yeah, we try to do our little research, yeah. but I don't think we're uh, doing you justice yet. No, it sounds like you're talking about a whole other person, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> Imposter syndrome kicking in. Oh, yeah. no. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Of course. Yeah. So I think uh, I have a really great feeling that this will be a very interesting conversation. I think we have so many things to talk about. But before we get in, into all that, how are you doing on this lovely Saturday? I am doing actually fantastic. The weather is amazing here in St. Louis today. I think it's about 80 degrees. I've already been out and done my run. I walked with the dogs. I went to DMB. Okay. And then I picked up some food for a social event tonight. So I've already had a packed day. <laughs> it's a, Wow. It's It sounds like a very eventful and scheduled day. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, so you mentioned the weather is looking great. I think, uh, I think yes. that's a good way to kind of segue into. Um, so with the great weather, obviously comes a lot of sun rays and obviously sunscreen. So just going on that note, uh, you are a breast surgeon. Mm-hmm. And I assume uh, you uh, receive some breast cancer cases. Uh, a- am I right to assume that? Yeah, I I do breast cancer surgery. So although it's kind of hard to pinpoint the innumerable causes of breast cancer cases, what would you say are the most common causes? Okay, so whenever I give a talk, I list there's a whole myriad list of causes for breast cancer, but I always tell the ladies or the men that I talk to that the two most common causes are being a woman and getting older. 
And those uh, risk factors that we call non-modifiable because we can't change it. If you're a woman, that's what you were born as. Uh, if you're getting older, you can't do anything about it. So those are the number one and number one reasons for developing breast cancer. Besides that, other reasons um, include uh, environmental changes. So things that you can actually do something about. So your lifestyle factors, what are you eating, how are you moving, things like uh, radiation exposure. Um, alcohol, cigarettes, things like that uh, increase your risk. Uh, the hormones that women take postmenopausal also increases the risk of breast cancer. And then uh, there are things like your genetics, you know, the particular gene mutations that a woman would, or a man would have been born with that can increase risk for breast cancer. Uh, so those are the main things that we look at as far as risk. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned something very interesting with the mutations. Are we talking about the BRCA1 and the BRCA2 mutations? Yes, uh, those are the most famous, let's say, of all the gene mutations, BRCA1 and BRCA2, but there are other mutations that have since been discovered that we know increases the risk for breast cancer. Uh, so we do what we call panel testing today when we screen for genetic testing. So we're not only screening for BRCA1 and 2, we're screening for others. There's ATM gene mutations, there's bad gene mutations, there's uh, PAL-B, uh, ATM, there's a, a whole list of them that people don't really know about. But BRCA1 and BRCA2 are the most famous, like I said. Um, but they each confer different degrees of risk for breast cancer. That's very interesting. So each gene mutation has different types of impact. Absolutely, yes. It's important to know which gene it is for a particular person because that helps us make decisions as far as treatment also. Oh, that's perfect because that kind of leads into my next question is, uh, does identifying the cause lead to a better treatment plan or are the two variables independent, would you say? But it seems like they are dependent to one another? They're very dependent. If a woman already has breast cancer, when we discover the gene that they have, it can impact whether we do a lesser surgery or a bigger surgery. Lesser meaning we're just removing the lump and uh, more surgery meaning that we're removing the whole breast because we want to do it preventatively because those women have a higher risk of another cancer developing. If a woman does not have breast cancer when we, when we discover the gene, then we're able to make recommendations for them as far as, is this someone who needs to have a prophylactic or preventative uh, mastectomy, which is uh, removing the breast? Or is this someone that we can just follow safely doing mammograms and MRIs and ultrasounds to evaluate them in hopes of finding the cancer sooner rather than later? So yes, knowing whether or not you've been diagnosed with breast cancer helps us make more decisions that can impact your future breast cancer risk. Because I think a lot of people listening will also appreciate this, uh, considering, like myself, there are others who have had family members or just friends' family members who have suffered from breast cancer, and it's it's right. horrible. Yes, it is. It's, uh, it's not a good disease, but if we're trying to look for positives in breast cancer, the positive is that it's a disease that we are able to screen for, because some diseases like pancreatic cancer, you really can't screen for. Ovarian cancer is really no good screening test for. But for breast cancer, we're able to screen for it. And it's a disease that if we find it early, it's almost 100% treatable. Yeah, no, I mean, with, with all the research that is happening, mm -hmm. with all the awareness, Breast Cancer Month. Um, So the 
thing that I wanted to ask that let's just say that a patient went through surgery, chemotherapy and radiation. Now they went through a, a lot of the ventures to get treated. Now the patient right. comes to you and ask, you know, if they're cured, you mentioned in one of your posts uh, that, and I quote, cancer doctors don't like this word because it brings to light our limitations, end quote. So I think you bring up a really great point. And if you can please elaborate in, on what you mean by limitations. Well, you know, the saying that um, surgeons are God or surgeons like to think that they are God. And if you're a Grey's Anatomy fan, you know that that's something that comes up quite a bit as far as surgeons feeling that they're God. But surgeons are not God. Doctors are not God. So we don't have that ability to to 100% cure a person, especially as oncologists. We would love to be able to 100% say you are cured, but we can't. Just because cancer cells are so tricky and sneaky and these little teeny microscopic cells break off and go bury themselves somewhere in the body where we can't find them. And then when we think we've done everything, surgery, chemo, radiation, I've done everything to treat the patient, five years from now, that little sneaky cancer that buried itself somewhere makes itself known because it's multiplied a billion times. We can't do anything about that little cell that's borrowed itself somewhere and it's multiplying. Um, so we can never tell, and I never do, I can't tell someone that they were 100% cured. If you notice when I said earlier, I think I said 95, 98% cure, but I, I never say 100% because just as long as there's a little bit of breast tissue, there's always a chance of something developing. But we continue to monitor for this, and a lot of women do well without any recurrences. You mentioned five years. There is, I'm assuming you're talking about the remission period of five years. Is that is that what we're kind of hinting at? Well, yeah, I use five years arbitrarily, but five years is used a lot in, in the oncology world and in uh, medical literature as the amount of time that we use to write a lot of research or, do, or present a lot of data for recurrence, prognosis, et cetera. So we'll say a woman's five-year cure rate is X, Y, Z, or in five years, these are the numbers we should see. And then the other number that's famously used is 10 years. After five years, we use 10 years. So for breast cancer, we know that if a woman is going to recur, they're going to recur within the first five years. So those are the critical years, uh, the first five years after a breast cancer treatment. Those are the years that we keep the most um, vigilant uh, watch over the person. And beyond five years, the risk of recurrence starts to go down. I see. Okay. So the, so the addiction is uh, measured or it's, it's influenced by the data that is shown and in the literature. Exactly. Okay. Um, so at this point, I think everyone knows that early detection is key to fighting cancer, especially breast cancer. I think this brings to light the concern that um, COVID quarantine brought with it. So, I mean, I can imagine that certain patients mm-hmm. that usually go for annual checkups are not so keen to go to a practice to get their annual right. mammograms due to COVID right. concerns. So how did COVID really impact your practice and what are your recommendations? COVID impacted uh, my practice personally, impacted a lot of uh, fellow breast surgeons, fellow oncologists, and fellow doctors tremendously. First, what COVID has taught us during the past year is that 
we can do a lot of telehealth, a lot of telemedicine. So a lot of things can be done just like you and I on Zoom right now. Right. But for my practice, I actually have to touch patients. I need to feel for lumps and I need to do mammograms. The patient has to be present for the mammography. I have to do ultrasounds, breast MRIs. The patient has to be present for that. Just for the listeners, what are mammograms? Mammograms are x-rays of the breast. These are the standard screening modality for the breast. X-ray picture that uh, takes a picture in two views, top to bottom and side to side of the breast so that we can see lumps or abnormalities that we cannot feel. So it's a screening test that we recommend women start to get from the age of 40 every year. And if uh, someone is younger and has a lump or we suspect that they're high risk, we'll do another type of test, which is an ultrasound. But the screening test of choice is a mammogram from the age of 40. So going back to the other question, so because of the fact that my patients have to be present for a lot of the care that we give to them, and as you recall, in those early months of COVID, everybody was quarantined, nobody was going anywhere. The hospitals were pretty much shut down and empty unless somebody was really, really sick. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly COVID patients. And people were not even comfortable leaving their house because they didn't want to catch this deadly disease that we knew really nothing about. So a lot of women that uh, typically came for their yearly mammograms postponed it. And they postponed it until probably, I want to say, October, November of last year. And I'm still seeing quite a few women coming in now for their annual mammogram. Subsequently, what I've noticed in my practice is a lot of late breast cancers, a lot of really terrible late breast cancers. These are breast cancers that should have been diagnosed last year, but because the women waited, now they are higher stage than what they should have been last year. So that's been the negative impact of COVID on breast cancer practice. It's just, it's really sad actually. And I think we're going to continue to see it even through later on this year, because um, we're still not back up to the volumes as far as screening that we were at last year or the year before last. Oh my God. I mean, this really highlights how important just annual checkups are and why yeah. your recommendations are to just go in for the annual checkup and try try your best to be safe because there are safety precautionary measures that are taken. At the beginning, nobody knew anything. Even the CDC didn't really know. So March, April, May were just horrible for all of us. We're trying to learn and figure out things. But I think by at least July, we had an idea of uh, what to do to be able to get patients through this safely. There were definitely a whole lot of safety precautions that we instituted June, July that made it safe for people to come in to have their mammography. But right. the damage of March, April, May had already been done. And there was just so much fear instilled in everyone. Nobody wanted to take a chance because nobody wanted to catch COVID. So we're still trying to fight some of that misinformation today and get people aware and coming in and know that, yes, it's safe. You know, I had my mammogram in the midst of COVID. It was fine. I was safe. And I tried to bring that out there. So social media to my patients, to the city where I practice, just so that people know that I'm comfortable doing it. So if your doctor is comfortable doing it, you should be comfortable doing it. And that's really all we can do is just uh, try to increase the awareness and have more people come in and hopefully we'll catch up to a lot of what we've missed. 
Yeah, and just taking that first step, as you just said, right. and showing them, yeah, if I can do it, you can do it as well. Absolutely. Um, beautifully said. Um, what I would like to do is kind of explore the other breast surgeries that you performed outside of oncology. Okay, outside of cancer surgery. Right. So um, uh, as a breast surgeon, I would say probably about 30% of what we do is cancer. And 70% is non-cancer. A lot of people are surprised when they hear that right. because you know, they think breast, uh, breast oncology is 100% uh, cancer, but it's not. I see a lot of women who come in for problems of their breasts that end up not being cancer, but they come in to see me because the primary fear in every woman's mind is, oh my gosh, is it cancer? Is it not cancer? So it's my job to kind of make the distinction and figure out what it is. And so I have a lot of women come into the office of breast pain. That is a non-surgical problem. A lot of times it's just reassurance and just trying to explain to them the reasons for the breast pain. A lot of women come in with breast cysts. Again, a lot of times that is non-surgical unless it's a complicated cyst, a cyst that becomes infected right. or a cyst that you know, carries some atypical cells. That's something that uh, is also reassurance. And sometimes just uh, drainage of the fluid in the office. So women come in with nipple discharge. Uh, if it's uh, bloody or if it's uh, water clear and it's coming out of one side, can be pathologic sometimes. So pathologic meaning that it can be abnormal and it's something that has a small percentage of being associated with cancer. Oh, wow. So a lot of times that's something that we, we take to surgery to remove the abnormal duct and test it. And the test results tell us the majority of the time that it's an intraductal papilloma, which is not a breast cancer, but it's something over time that can uh, morph into a breast cancer. So that's something that we do surgery for, just a minor procedure. We do surgeries for benign breast lumps. Say someone came in with a lump in their breast and we tested it. And uh, the way we tested it is we did a needle, a needle biopsy in the office where we just numb the skin and pass a needle through the numb area and take a small piece of the lump. And we look at the cells under the microscope and we find out that there's a benign lump, like a fibroadenoma or a papilloma or just a myriad other uh, benign breast lumps. Um, some of those lumps carry an increased risk for cancer. Some of them don't carry any risk for breast cancer at all. But some women, once they feel a lump in their breast, even though we tell them it's okay, they just don't want it there. Yeah. So a lot of times we'll just go in and do surgery just for removal of a lump. I see. So those, those are minor breast surgeries. Or so sometimes we see something on a mammogram that looks abnormal that we cannot get with a needle biopsy for diagnosis. So we'll go to surgery to remove it. Or something that we've done a needle biopsy on on the mammogram and we find out that it's abnormal or atypical then we want to remove it because we don't want an increased risk for developing breast cancer. Wow. It just seems like one specialty has so many things that it can cover. Mm -hmm. So now what I would like to do is I would like to rewind the clock just a little bit and just to ask you about your dream to pursue medicine. Uh, when I was doing research to prepare for this interview, I came across something that made me very happy. Uh, I read that you are the oldest sibling of seven and you yourself <laughs> migrated from Nigeria. Is that correct? I sure I sure did. Yes. Okay. Uh, it just made me very happy because I also migrated from from a poverty-stricken third world country when I was 10. And, you know, you moved to the Bronx. I moved to Brooklyn. Oh, and, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So now while I was doing my, my medical school interviews, I brought up my background a lot and how it influenced me to practice medicine as my future career. 
So would you say that your culture and your background had a similar influence? Uh, most definitely. <laughs> yes. The short answer is yes. And the long answer, which I'm going to explain, is I, I don't know if you know any Nigerians, uh, but um, I think Nigerian parents were the original tiger parents because they stress education, education, education. It's not enough that you've gone to high school. And actually, when I first got here, my parents used to just laugh when friends of theirs say they're uh, having a high school graduation for their kids. And their response was always, seriously, why are you celebrating <laughs> high school? That's a given. Okay, wow. you, know, you don't celebrate until they're done with college. So that's that's the kind of family I grew up in. You know, you, you must go to college and then you must do something after college. And for Nigerians, there's only maybe three or four recognized professions. You're either a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, or a nurse. I believe that's the fourth one. Yeah, those are the only professions that are recognized. So I have known since I was three, growing up in the family that I grew up in, that I was going to be a doctor because that's how I was introduced to people from the age of three. This is Javita. She's going to be a future doctor. <laughs> so... So I don't know if that buried itself somewhere in my mind that I just naturally went that route. But it, I can honestly say it's something that I've always, always wanted to do. And then the other piece of it, which I don't know if you found in your research, is that my great-grandfather was a medicine man in Nigeria. So he was the village medicine man. He did not practice traditional Western medicine, but he did right. whatever he did that cured his patients. And I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and that had a lot of influence on me. It was great uh, going the Western route and being able to, to treat people the way my great-grandfather did. And I think what I enjoyed in those days, being a little girl sitting in his hut, watching him, is just his interactions with people, the way people had respect for him and he had reciprocal respect for people. And the way he talked to them, the way he treated them, I I liked that relationship, and I, uh, I I enjoyed that also with my patients, not just being their physician, but just being their advocate, just being there for them, and being their friend, and being able to take care of them uh, with the knowledge that I have. That's what he did. So that also influenced me a lot. It just seems like he brought out that holistic side of medicine. He did. And then you were able to transform that into the knowledge that you gather from the Western medicine from medical school and fellowship. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. Uh, you have been a prominent voice in just fighting against inequality and in fighting against, you know, any biases. Uh, so I think it is really good that you're using your platform to do such things. What was your motivation for, I mean, obviously it's coming from a background and going through that, but was there anything specific? Yeah, I, I don't think it was any one thing. I think it was several things and it's not something that I've been doing for a long time. It's something that actually that I started recently that came to me recently. Like I said, with the family that I was raised in and the way we were raised, we were really raised to just do what we had to do, go to school, graduate, and work. I did not know any racism growing up in Nigeria. And I came here, because I said, about 10, 11. And uh, when I came here, my parents, again, they were not people that really 
emphasized the differences in the races. Uh, they didn't care that someone was white or black. And we never talked about those type of things in our house. And I obviously had um, instances of prejudice or racism directed towards me. But again, because of the way that I grew up, it was never anything that I um, internalized or thought about because to me, it just kind of rolled off my back. It, I never thought about it. It was not until recently mm-hmm. that I was uh, in a forum with a group of women talking about uh, racism in America that some of those um, things just started coming back to me. And I was like, wow, you know, I did experience this, but I just never thought it was part of my reality and uh, anything that I needed to deal with. So that started to bring some of that back. And then the second thing was um, just really um, a lot of what's been going on lately in the media with policemen uh, shooting young black males and um, having a young black male son and just fearing that it probably doesn't matter that both of his parents are physicians or he comes right. from a, uh, you know, uh, more than middle class family and he's in college and educated. Probably doesn't matter. All they see is that he's a young black male and what's to stop someone from shooting him the same way the other kids have been shot. So that started going through my mind and that really had a lot of fear um, with it. And then the third thing that happened, all of these almost happened simultaneously. The third thing was I was talking to another uh, female physician who is also of Nigerian background. And she's very much um, a, uh, a voice in social media and um, in the community as far as all of these uh, issues with um, racism. And she said to me, um, Mm-hmm. I know that you don't think this is your problem because you were not born here and your family did not come from slavery uh, because I can trace my entire family history. I know my great grandparents and on and on. And I know that we're not part of the um, African-American experience of mm-hmm. slavery. So my mentality is a little different from someone who grew up here. So she said, Yes, I understand where you're coming from with this, but you have to think about what they went through and everything that happened with the civil rights movement and how, if none of that happened, you probably would not have had the opportunity to come to this country like you did in the 80s. And that that was really uh, kind of a defining moment because that was 100% true. You know, so much that happened with people that I didn't really think, think that I had that much in common with impacted the fact that parents were able to come here. I was able to come here uh, because if none of the civil rights uh, activism went on, mm-hmm. this country probably would have been still where it was back in the 20s, 30s, and they wouldn't have allowed other minorities to come in. So it's not just an African-American problem. It's, it's an everybody problem, actually. So it's not a Black problem. It's not a white person. Everybody problem. And so long as I had a little bit of a voice on social media, I felt it was my duty to speak up, to say something. Even if I could change one mind, then I would have done my job. So that's my long answer <laughs> to your short question. <laughs> Beautifully said. 
you talked about, you know, using your social media. And one way that you use your social media is your unique template that you have. And of course, I'm talking about the Monday movement motivation and Mm -hmm. the Teaching Tuesday. So my question is, how did that get started? Was it like a journaling type of thing that just evolved into this post? Well, I, I don't like to do things that are random. I like to do things that make sense to me and things that are meaningful and things that are intentional. So I didn't want to be on social media just because, you know, I'm a doctor and other doctors on social media. If I was going to be on social media, I was going to be on social media to uh, impact some kind of knowledge, to have a basic message. My basic message is I'm a health and wellness uh, platform. So that's what I want to come across. But I'm also a very busy person. I have a life, so I don't want social media to consume my whole life. Yes. So I felt I needed a schedule. Um, I think in the beginning, I was kind of posting randomly and it just didn't make sense. So uh, at some point, I don't even know how long ago it was, I decided that I was going to once a week post something related to breast health, which is what I do. And then something related to fitness, which is my passion, which impacts a lot of other health issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the other two times in the week, I was going to talk about travel, maybe because I love travel or just do something motivational to the young women that follow me to let them know they can do it type of thing. And every once in a while, something with my friends or family. So that's how that whole uh, template came about. So Monday movement motivation sounded really good. And it was a, it was a it good really way. Good. <laughs> it was a good way to start off the week with, you know, let's move because movement is important for breast health and cardiac health is important for overall health. And then teaching Tuesdays is just my opportunity to just impact a little bit of knowledge about what I do every day. I'm also a visual person. I like things to kind of look pretty. I didn't want to just have have pictures and randomly. And I, I love quotes. So I thought I would intersperse every two posts with a quote that I liked because I found sometimes a quote has to do with something that's going on currently. And sometimes it's just something that I found that I like. Like it's just when you look at the page, it's like it's so beautifully structured. And then the posts are well written. Thank you. Um, you also love to read and write is the writing portion kind of related to these posts uh, where these posts kind of go from a journaling thought process of okay this is what I want to talk about okay and then it turns into emerges into the post it is it is when when I started this whole journey into social media I started with um, a blog and uh, I just soon found that I could not keep up with it you know I, I just couldn't with my job. So, so then I started um, Instagram and it was just so much easier because I could just do a quick picture and a quick little thing. And there you have it. And that's, yeah, that's how I kind of evolved into this. Um, I still write on the side, nothing that I've posted lately, but actually writing is my first love. If um, I didn't go into medicine, I would have become a writer. And so I'm working on a a book, actually, a couple of books right now that I'm working on. That's very exciting. Congratulations. But that's, yeah, thank you. But this is just a little way of continuing to write uh, on a regular basis, even though it's nothing big. Are you into fiction? 
fiction, nonfiction? I read really everything. I think um, everything I can get my hand on. Thanks now to Audible, I can listen to a book as I exercise. So I can kind of combine a whole bunch of different things at the same time and get through lots of books. Audible is amazing. Amazing. It, it is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's it's the best in, the best invention, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you can also speed it up on certain points where you're just like, okay. Yeah. Yes, which which I do. <laughs> yes. It's, it's great. It's, <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, it's great. I actually I was reading, uh, I think it was last week. I, I had it um I had it on speaker and my husband walks past and he's like, What the heck? Can you understand that? I'm like, Yes, I can. That's how I listen to the books. <laughs> he was so incredible. <laughs> See, yeah. that's efficiency right there. Uh <laughs> yes, it is. It is. <laughs> um now you're talking about listening to audiobooks. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners or just a book that you have read that always left an impact on you? Oh, I read two books lately or recently that I've been recommending to all my friends. The one is called The Loudin Voice. I cannot think of the writer's name, so don't ask me, but they can find that easily. It is such a good book. And the second was Homecoming. I recommend it highly to everyone. Now, unfortunately, uh, I think we're near the end of the podcast. Uh, however, as per the title of the podcast, Doctors In, uh, let's just go through a guided story as a closing remark. Uh, we like to imagine that you are a traveler who are coming by Doctors In and you come to rest for lunch. Uh, before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, ask you for one quote or a piece of advice that uh, I can frame on my wall of my inn. Uh, so what would that piece of advice be it can be something you live your life by for example a principle or an ideology one of my favorites is um if not now when is one of them and then it's the second part of that quote is if not you then who uh that is a very powerful quote I think I think that's about it. If someone in the audience has any questions or interested in learning more about your field, breast oncology, breast surgery, and just living a healthy, wonderful life with fitness, obviously, uh, where can they find you? Well, they can find me uh, on Instagram. That's the best, easiest way to find me at live with Dr. Jovita, J-O-V-I-T-A underscore O um, on my website. And you can just DM me on uh, Instagram. Sometimes I don't get to the messages in a timely fashion, but I do get to them eventually. But that's the best way to reach me. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Orwari, for taking your time out for this. And we know how busy it can be. And I'm just so glad that you actually just took this little, you know, Saturday to do this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a pleasure talking to you. And I wish all the listeners luck and um, find me if you have questions. Thank you. All right. A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcasts on Instagram and on YouTube to watch our animated videos for each of our episodes. See you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.